Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice podcast. It is so great to be with you today. I'm Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, an author, and the originator of the awareness integration theory. Our conversation is about what matters most in our life, our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. A couple of announcements for all psychotherapists, mental health prof uh, professionals, practitioners, and life coaches. The Essentials of Awareness Integration Theory course is coming up June 24th to 26th, and the Early Bird Special is coming up on June 10th. So sign up, and the space is limited. Love to have you um, to share with you the theory and interventions with all of you. So it's going to be exciting. So sign up soon and call me at, um, or actually write to me at awarenessintegrationinstitute at gmail.com or go to awarenessintegration.com. So you will have all the information. Today, I am so honored and I'm so excited to chat with Dr. Jeffrey Zeig. He is the founder and director of Milton Erickson Foundation, having studied intermittently with Dr. Erickson for more than six years. He edited, co-edited, authored, and co-authored more than 20 books that appeared in 12 foreign languages. And he actually forwarded my book, The Awareness Integration Therapy, and I'm so grateful for his mentorship and who he is. His current area of interest is extracting implicit codes of influence from various arts, including movie, music, painting, poetry, and fiction that can be used to empower professional practice and everyday communication. Dr. Zeich is the architect of the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conferences. It's coming up this, um, this December. So if, if you are a professional, uh, um, a mental health professional, you've got to come. It's going to be again in person in Florida, December, beginning of December. Consider the most important conference in the history of psychotherapy. He also organizes the brief therapy conferences and the couples conferences, which will be next month. Also go to coupleconference.com and um, the International Congress on Ericksonian Approaches to Hypnosis and Psychotherapy. Dr. Zeich, is on the editorial board of numerous journals. It is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. He is the president of Zyke Tucker and Tyson Publisher in the Behavioral Sciences and the Erickson Foundation Press. Today, we will be talking about his latest book, An Epic Life, Milton Erickson. We're gonna have an amazing conversation about he uh, interviewing him interviewing about 85 people who have uh, had personal experiences that we learned from Dr. Milton Erickson. So um, it's going it, to, it's an amazing conversation. So subscribe to this podcast, please, or my YouTube channel, connect with me through my website, fujanzane.com or any of the social medias. I love to hear from you and know what your thoughts are and um, the topics you want to talk about and the, the conversations and people that you would like to hear from. So here we are, Dr. Jeffrey Zeich.
Dr. Jeffrey Zeig, it is so nice to have you with me and um, again, and for, to talk about your latest book, An Epic Life, Milton Erickson's Life. So um, one of the first question that comes up for me is that um, not only you are the founder of Milton Erickson Foundation, but um, you have uh, been working with the masters of this field. So the question always showed up for me in how come um, you um, wanted to work with Melton Erickson for more than six years. And after that, you want, you are um, holding him in a space, his work in a space of honor. So working with all of the masters, why him? Yeah. I recently did a workshop on the Masters of Psychotherapy in Italy. There were, in one day, we looked at 12 15-minute excerpts of master psychotherapists from cognitive behavior therapy, family therapy, Gestalt therapy, Ericksonian therapy, uh, people whose work defined 20th century and the beginning of 20th cent 21st century psychotherapy. And one thing that was clear was that there's no um, defined process, there's no defined theory, there's no defined procedure that makes psychotherapy right. A lot has to do with the stylistic elements. What is the style of the, the expert whose work you try to emulate? Now, uh, I, am, I bring together, I consider myself an eclectic psychotherapist, experiential eclectic, I bring together in the work that I do, techniques and methods, ways of thinking from various schools of psychotherapy. But out of all of the therapists I studied, Milton Erickson was the one who appealed to me the most stylistically. And what appealed to me was the, the density of the communication. Like if you go to a movie from 20 years ago, it seems like child play in comparison to the movies of today, because directors, screenwriters, uh, editors have learned to add a lot more density that has a way of activating a realization in the moviegoer. So Erickson represented someone who really understood the intricacies, the complexities, the totality of communication, how to help people to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. And that appealed to me stylistically. So I rely on a lot that I've learned from and continue to learn about the approaches that Erickson used. For many of our audience that might not know all about Dr. Erickson, Milton Erickson uh, was an American psychiatrist and a psychologist specializing in medical hypnosis and family therapy. He was the founding president of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis and a fellow of American Psychiatric Association, Psychological Association, Psychopathological Association. He's noted for his approach to the unconscious mind as a creative and solution generating. And uh, as my understanding, his uh, way of looking at an unconscious mind was very, very different than Freud. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, to Freud, the unconscious was a seething cauldron of impulses that needed to be tamed. To Erickson, the un unconscious process were a library of resources where you could stimulate into play resources like 
people who believe that they can't cross a bridge have resources that they can use to be able to accomplish a task that they're phobic about. People who feel like they can't be comfortable without a cigarette have resources in, in their history. The idea is to stimulate into play the resources that exist. So Erickson, in anybody who's in the profession on their list of the top 10 historical figures in psychotherapy would be on that list. Whereas previous to Erickson, experts were interested in developing theories. Why are people the way that they are? Theories of personality. Erickson didn't have a theory of personality, not an explicit one. He had procedures of helping people to activate as agents on their own behalf, helping them to live more adaptively. Now, Erickson was in the history of hypnosis. He was the primary figure at developing a modern approach to hypnosis, but he was also someone who developed brief psychotherapy. That the problem of psychotherapy is helping people to get out of therapy, living life independent of therapy as quickly as possible. So he was well known in that area, but he was also a contributor in many intellectual areas. Like there were, during World War II, when not very much was known about the German personality and the Japanese personality, anthropologists Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson brought Erickson into a project where he would do an analysis and that information could be funneled through the what was called the Center for Intercultural Studies to the War Department, which is what was called in World War II. And Erickson was a, a figure who not only developed within the field of psychotherapy, but his work has been influential out of it. The people who have studied neuro-linguistic program or studied the work of Tony Robbins, these have been a derivation to uh, some extent from the foundation that Erickson established. So Erickson's work permeates coaching, permeates psychotherapy, and to some extent has uh, led itself into popular culture. Um, he was born in 1901 and he was actually had the, described himself as having dyslexia, colorblind, tone deaf, and at one point he had polio. And um, it seemed uh, he explained it as all of these disabilities really allowed him to become so much more um, observant in, in the way that he saw um, a human behavior or the way a person was talking or the way that he was with a spatial um, way of being. And I remember kind of listening to some of the experts, uh, excerpts that you had read from the Epic Life um, about how observant he was, and it was so different than other um, psychiatrists who were working with uh, some of the patients. Yes. Whether or not a therapist is observant doesn't determine the effectiveness of the therapy. There are some therapists who are keenly listening to the patterns of verbal behavior of the client, other therapists who are much more visually adept. Erickson was one of those people who was visually perceptive, remarkably visually perceptive. And yes, his infirmities were one of the things that helped him to develop his unique visual perceptiveness. Erickson grew up on a farm. He had, um, uh, uh, he came from a, a family that was relatively normal, undistinguished family. 
the average uh, brother and sister went through an eighth grade education and Erickson was one of the few who went to college and uh, the only one who went to graduate school. So he was an anomaly in his own family. When I met Erickson in 1973, he was confined to a wheelchair. His uh, vision was double, his hearing was impaired. He wasn't wearing a denture. He had to learn how to re-speak. And this was a man who had an actor's control of his uh, communication and had to relearn how to speak without a denture. He was in constant chronic pain. In, if he, in order to, his right side of his body was more paralyzed from the residuals of post-polio syndrome. So in order to eat, he would have to guide with his left hand, a spoon in his right hand to his mouth. Now, Erickson perfumed the atmosphere with joy, the joy of being alive. When you saw Erickson, you had pain, you had limitations. You were talking to someone who had more pain, more limitations than you did. And he was transcending his limitations, trying to do his best to help you to be a better person. So when I went to Erickson, I thought he was going to teach me techniques and theories, but really what I learned from him was how to be a better person. So when I put together this biography called An Epic Life, this is the first uh, book in a, uh, where I interviewed 85 professionals who knew Erickson during his life. It's an inspiring story. It's not just a story about technical brilliance or, or theoretical genius. It's a story about how do you face adversity and have the courage to be able to transmute adversity into adaptive ways of living. Um, one of the things that I had read was Erickson's greatest contribution to psychotherapy was not only his innovative techniques, but his ability to depathologize people and consider a, a patient's problematic behavior as indicative of a best choice available to that individual. And his approach um, facilitated the patient's access to inner resources, as you said, to solve problems. And the, the concept of also utilization, which I've heard you talk a lot about in the conferences and psychotherapies, I identify primarily with, with his work um, more than any other therapist, but also his, um, some of his techniques, which, you know, I've never met him, uh, but I, every time I've sat to, in one of your lectures, um, I've seen it a lot through, and especially one of the ones that um, uses the confusion technique, which um, you're brilliant at it. And sometimes I sit and, and watch you and hear you use words in a particular way where at the beginning is as if like in a con the conscious mind goes, uh, what? And then all, but the message kind of um, lands in a whole different way without your conscious mind at that moment picking it up. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, it, you're, you're very on target with what you're asking and there's lots of complexities to that. If you think about confusion, that is an aggressive term. If you think about destabilization, this is something that happens in common practice. When a composer, say someone who's composing symphonic music and switches into a minor key and suddenly doesn't bridge in a normal way into the uh, transposition of a theme, 
these are methods that are understood in art as ways of helping people to focus attention on the themes that are being presented. The same thing happens in a movie with a jump cut where suddenly the director uses a jump cut and you understand the time has passed. It's the same thing about uh, a painter using a diagonal line to represent movement that is not stable and a horizontal line to represent movement that's stable. So um, the understanding of using evocative elements requires an understanding of strategic process and requires an understanding of multiple level communication and requires an understanding of using some destabilizing elements. If you're telling a joke, there's a destabilizing element. There's a moment in which you're switching levels. And uh, if I told the joke about Phoenix, Arizona, where I live, what's the difference between Phoenix and yogurt? And the difference is that the yogurt has active culture. <laughs> now, when there's a little bit of destabilization and you don't understand culture as being a bacteria or culture as being a social convention, then there is uh, a moment of destabilization, which is necessary in art, in music. And so Erickson brought this idea into psychotherapy in a way that had never been used before. And it was one of the most seminal technical contributions that he made. But really, if we looked into the history of art, we would see many examples of how destabilization is used by artists in various realms. When you talk about your personal experience and in the, uh, this book, An Epic Life, uh, Milton Erickson, uh, we talk about all of the other experts who have had personal experiences with Milton Erickson. Um, what stands the tallest for you in your experience? Well, for the average reader, it's how do you challenge yourself to face adversity? We all face trauma, we all face pain, we all face limitations. And we need people who are father and mother magicians who inspire us to bring out the best in ourselves. And it's my hope that uh, when readers look into this biography, they will do soul searching, look inside themselves, find something inside themselves that helps to deal with the inevitabilities that befuddle us in everyday life. What is the fulcrum, like a fulcrum is something that you would use to move a heavy weight. If the fulcrum is family or creativity or God or faith, what is a fulcrum that you can use? And I've been blessed to have an opportunity to, to meet many um, interesting men and women from different areas of the world, from psychotherapy, from uh, religion, from uh, art, and understand that when you have a why, this fulcrum, you can endure the hows that are painful and inevitable in life. So that is the part of Erickson that still appeals to me. Yes, there was technical genius. Yes, there were innovations that had, that had added to my world of being a, a common everyday psychotherapist, but um, the overall arching platform is um, remembering to see this uh, relatively physically frail man 
who lived with such joy and such interest in helping other people to bring out the best in themselves. And that was his why, to bring the best that, that was everyone around him in, in, in that space. He was a doc. He, want, he wanted to be a great doc. Yes. So after um, interviewing all of the experts who have been with him, um, how has that changed your life? Knowing him, being with him, um, having your own personal experience, and then sitting with all the others who kind of talk, you know, like friends talking about someone they knew, um, who they all admired, adored, and learned from. I think it's an amazing, rich experience that we gain after that kind of uh, group collaboration or sharing. Yeah, well, Erickson was one of those people who was hard to pigeonhole. You couldn't just say that he was a hypnotist or a brief therapist or a psychiatrist or a uh, um, intellectual contributor. He was uh, a person who um, was bringing out the best in himself on a daily basis. In, in this book, when I interviewed um, people, there were people who were critical, there were people who were adoring, there were people who were uh, influenced in positive ways in their profession. But Erickson was prismatic in and of himself. Like, I write books. So uh, I can take a theme and develop that over the course of three or 500 pages, whatever the length of the book is. Erickson was pr prismatic. He wrote 135 different professional papers exploring different little areas. So the book represents a prismatic structure, which was more Erickson's intellectual style. He could write a, a paper about using these destabilizing techniques or using techniques that were um, more um, based in establishing an associative net that would drive constructive realization. So uh, these methods that Erickson explored have been categorized and they're really interesting. But I was, you know, I created a lot of my career around meeting Erickson 50 years ago. It was actually 49 years ago that I first encountered Milton Erickson when I had my master's degree and I was already a therapist and I had this remarkable opportunity because I read something about his work and I was lucky to be able to get to meet him when he was not so uh, popular and there weren't hordes of people who were coming to Phoenix to learn from him. And uh, so I, I have a, a great debt. Erickson was my mentor over more than six years when I intermittently traveled to Phoenix to, to learn from him, eventually moved here. So uh, doing this book is, uh, it's like um, payback and it's a way of uh, honoring and appreciating someone who gave so much to my professional and personal life. And I wanted to be sure that I um, recorded some of the important facets of who he was. This book is about Erickson's professional contributions. The book that's in process right now is about Erickson's personal life. 
interviews with uh, some of his uh, siblings and with his children and with the people who are closest to him. So we get this prismatic view of Erickson as a professional and another prismatic view of Erickson as he was in his personal life. You talked about controversies and that you also have um, talked to some people who brought up some of the controversies about Erickson. Um, were the controversies more about his techniques or is it more about that he uh, was going beyond um, the box and uh, it was scary for people to kind of look at his techniques uh, that were going above and beyond and around the box that everybody was used to? Well, uh, his psychotherapy was developed in Europe uh, and it was uh, in 1885 that Freud first became interested in the psychological aspects of medicine. So psychotherapy is a relatively young profession and it, it was dominated before World War II by European influences with a, an understructure of understanding why are people the way that they are. And then when Europe was decimated during World War II, the United States, because of its post-scarcity consciousness, we weren't dealing with reconstructing our factories and our homes from the horror of war. And we had the opportunity to develop uh, our interest in something that was uh, more psychological. You can't have psychotherapy if scarcity is the uh, uh, main economic social determinant in a country, you need to be able to have some stability to start thinking about your existential realities and your psychological strengths and weaknesses. So Erickson and a number of people were swimming upstream. When you're swimming upstream, you're going to have uh, people who are criticizing you on theoretical grounds, on historical grounds, on um, you know, challenges and uh, uh, the, the psychotherapy in the 20th century was about divergence. I've developed a theory about families and how systems work. Another expert saying I've developed a theory about behavior. Another expert saying I've developed a theory about the importance, the foundational importance of cognition. And each expert was like a religious figure and this was the doctrine and this was the right way. And then there was of course criticism of people looking over the fence and saying, well, what you're doing in your field is not really relevant. What I'm doing in my field is what's most important. Now, as we move into the 21st century, there's more convergence and people trying to learn from each other rather than uh, polemics and criticizing each other's theoretical and technical prowess. But if you were going to swim upstream, you were going to be criticized and um, uh, I'm sure that some of the criticisms about Erickson are well-founded, but uh, nobody is uh, complete in a field like psychotherapy where so much can't be perfectly researched and so much is left to idiosyncratic realizations. Beautiful. And I know that um, your mentorship, not only you were mentored by him and giving back to him, but you are also giving back so much to the world of psychotherapy uh, via all the conferences that you have created, um, the evolution of psychotherapy, which is so inspiring because it does bring all the masters together uh, for all the other therapists um, in any of the mental health field. 
to be able to learn firsthand, not only through books, but come in and firsthand experience them, watch them work. Uh, couples uh, conference, which you bring the masters of couples therapy and family therapy together. Uh, brief therapy conferences, which again, you give uh, open hand and um, open the world for all of the people who are doing different things out there and bring in and uh, share it with uh, the rest of the colleagues. And uh, you, you've extended your mentorship to the rest of us in the field. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you for being part of it. And you've been avid about helping to promote the conferences and you've been avid about attending them. So the, the uh, best idea I had as an empresario was in 1985 uh, celebrating the 100th birthday of psychotherapy by bringing together titular leaders of various schools of psychotherapy. 7,000 people came to Phoenix to celebrate uh, the 100th birthday of psychotherapy. It was like Woodstock for psychotherapists. You, uh, after Labor Day, you couldn't get a registration because the conference was already filled. And uh, so that has been my uh, crowning achievement as an impresario. And, but, um, we also organize the couples conference, couplesconference.com. That's for professionals who are treating couples, and that'll be next month as a virtual conference. So yes, I, I've tried to honor various forebears and the, the remarkable contributions that they've made, bring them together and have them enter into dialogue so that we can promote the the forces of consilience that bring ideas together rather than people arguing about obscure aspects of doctrine. What are the commonalities that make couples therapy, brief therapy, Ericksonian therapy, psychotherapy in general? What are those commonalities that make psychotherapy work? And still coming back to the idea that a lot depends on the style of the therapist and the, the particular interests. So I uh, keep on learning, keep on exploring, keep on pursuing different themes and uh, um, try to uh, develop myself as a better clinician, as, as a writer, and uh, also as an impresario organizing conferences. When you look at uh, post-COVID, or we're still in COVID, but kind of post-COVID, Times where uh, anxiety, depression, rates of suicide, uh, rate of almost all mental uh, conditions have kind of skyrocketed. Um, what are your suggestions for people? How for them to take care of themselves? In um, you know, for for the people who are with us and listening to us or viewing us that are not psychotherapists, um, what are your suggestions for them? Yeah. It was an anecdote that comes to mind, and it was about Aldous Huxley, the uh, superb writer who wrote Brave New World, ha happened also to collaborate with Erickson because they were interested in different forms of consciousness. And Huxley was a pacifist. He wrote a book about nonviolence and nonviolent procedures that could be used for social change. And he gave a speech, it was a rousing speech. And one young man after the speech approached Huxley and said, well, what can we do now? Thinking that it would be a call for social action. And Huxley uh, thinking about the 
theme of acting locally in order to do things globally said to the young men, try and be a little kinder. And one of my mentors wrote a book with that title, Try to Be a Little Kinder, a series of essays, letters about nonviolent uh, procedures. So um, the, the restrictions that happen, everything in life is about obstacle and intention. Obstacle is always there. And the greatest obstacle is that we all face impending death. And what is our intention? And how can we use intention to move adversity? And uh, that's a heroic drama. If we allow adversity to overpower intention, then life becomes a tragedy. So even at our darkest hours, what is our intention? If the intention is about love or creativity or about connection or about uh, contribution or about adventure, what is our intention? What is the defining uh, foundation around which we create meaning? And how can we bring that center stage, even though the weight of adversity is so great? And uh, Erickson's life was an example of that. And, but many other people who I've been privileged to meet too have um, shown an ability to face adversity with intention and use the foundation that they have in order to surmount as much of the difficulties of adversity as possible. Um, COVID is just one of, of one example of the complexity of adversity that we all face and we're um, not going to ever be free of adversity. So how do we focus on the meaning? How do we focus on the intention that we make center stage? So the why you were talking before about the Erickson yes. is how to bring that and into intentionality and uh, work with your own resources, as you were saying, in order to move beyond whatever uh, is happening for you. Because for some people, although this was there, um, they 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 made it work better for them so after two to three years they actually have uh, better relationships with their family and you know it, they utilize the time in a way that was beneficial and they had that intention and there were other people who kind of uh, got startled and then broke and it's how to come back into creating that intentionality of moving forward um with the best of them but with the best of what's inside yeah um, anything we haven't covered, Jeff, that it's you really want people to know about you or um, Dr. Milton Erickson? Well, I was trying to think anecdotally because so much of what Erickson did was anecdotal. Um, and uh, let's see if I can pull up um, a case that I could talk about. Um, uh, that would uh, represent something that Erickson would, would do. Um, well, simple case. Well, there's nothing simple. Um, let's see. I'm not uh, focusing on something that would be relevant to a popular audience. Um, one of the 
vignettes in the book is about one of my friends, David, who uh, was visiting Erickson in an early part in his career and was uh, wanting to get help and thinking that he would talk with Erickson about being frivolous in his spending and that suddenly Erickson would just do a trance and suddenly David would be a different person in regard to his spending. And uh, Erickson, using a destabilizing technique at the end of the day, asked uh, David why at that juncture, 1970s, he was wearing his hair so long and suddenly he got destabilized thinking about all of the problems that he had had with his father and his father's critique of his style of dressing that was contemporary for young people at the time. And Erickson then suddenly uh, ended the session. And then um, he uh, you know, said to David, um, you, the next day, just using a strategic process, developing things in a series of unique steps, um, you uh, earn money, it's good to earn money. When you earn money, you can buy things. For example, you can buy books. And when you buy books, you can read books. David is, of course, agreeing to this. And then Erickson says, and you make money and you use your money and you can buy clothing. And when you buy clothing, you could use your clothing. Mm -hmm. And then Erickson steps into high gear and says, and you can also buy a savings account. Now, the way in which that idea was presented and the sequential development and the destabilizing elements from the previous day suddenly clicked into place and David realized uh, to his own delight that he could make a change. Now, it's not an especially hypnotic procedure or a profound procedure, but it's a procedure that develops an understanding that ideas can be communicated sequentially, that we can pay attention not just to the message that's being delivered, but to the way in which the message is being delivered over time, how we set up, set up, set up, intervene and follow through on a particular procedure. It was not a a profound example, but it is an example that's from the book and much better told in the voice of David who uh, explains uh, in very good prose what it was like to be with Erickson and uh, go through that procedure. Um, I had actually listened to you uh, read The Expert on YouTube, so everyone, you can also uh, put in Jeff Zeig and, and Erickson and you'll have the, your reading some parts of the book, which is amazing. Um, and as you were talking about that, I just wanted to share with our audience, because I think that most people, when they talk about uh, hypnosis or hypnotherapy, their idea is always the classical one that, you know, your eyes goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you, you know, you kind of like fall asleep or you're, you know, they, they use it with the hand elevation and then you're suddenly uh, sleep and it's as if you no longer are conscious and someone is, you know, uh, talking in your ears and they're going to make you do whatever you want, which is a little bit more of the entertainment aspect. But more and more as I've um, studied hypnosis with you, with Dr. Yapko, and I've watched you work, um, it's a lot of the conversation that although you know, your, your voice becomes um, hypnotic and kind of like mesmerizing, but it is, it looks like a pretty normal dialogue that people are having together and it's a going back and forth. 
but the art that you're using as a psychotherapist uh, in within in doing the hypnotherapy um it has all of those aspects of what you see from the person and then how you shift that in and bringing all of these other pieces to it and giving it back to them so they can like you said at the beginning of our talk that you um, notice all of the resources that that person has or human being have in general and you weave them together to bring all of these in a bigger picture for them where they might not be seeing like their lens is very focused and the way you uh, talk to them is expanding the lens that they've been looking at so that it they have the aha moment within them that's what i was picking up more yeah so how do you conceptually realize something like um there are concepts that we are strong in and concepts are weaker in. we may be strong in responsibility and weaker in motivation strong in connection weak in friendship so we live in a world that's not just defined by facts but it's defined by concepts now the question is how do you realize a concept Hypnosis is primarily conceptual communication. You're using a series of uh, procedures that elicit a realization that someone can change his state. Now, if we thought about it in a very simplistic way, it's like the client is in reverse and the client is limited behaviorally, emotionally, physically, cognitively, relationally. And what we want to do is to help the client to get into a state where they're no longer being confined by their limitations. Now, if you go from a restricted state to a neutral state, and let's think about hypnosis as being shifting a car, standard shift car from reverse into neutral. If you can shift into neutral, that represents momentum. And from that momentum, you can get into first gear. So you don't really use hypnosis to give people information. If somebody needs to have the Pythagorean theory explained to them, you just explain it to them. It's based in facts. But in a world in which people need to realize concepts, you can explain to your adolescent child why being responsible is a good thing and why this will help him or her to live a better life into the distant future. But the adolescent needs to have a realization, I can be responsible. And that will happen perhaps by joining a sports team, by getting a job, by had be, being involved in a relationship there's something an experience that clicks the realization and suddenly you go from oh yeah i know responsibility exists in the world and yeah it's, it sounds like it should be a good thing to i can be responsible and maybe that leads to i will be responsible and maybe that leads to oh i'm being responsible and it's pleasant and that may lead to oh i'm a responsible person but the shifts in those levels, in those steps, doesn't necessarily happen because of explanation. It happens because of a conceptual realization. So hypnosis is the paradigm, the foundational paradigm for conceptual realizations. And it's not a matter of just pushing some suggestion into a passive person as it's uh, portrayed in the media. It's a matter of awakening people to their possibilities. It's a paradox because hypnosis is associated, at least in uh, Greek literature, with sleep. Hypnosis was the god of sleep. 
and uh, the, um, the portrayal of hypnosis in the media doesn't represent anything like the way that I might use hypnosis as a foundational experiential technique, demonstrating to somebody you can have a realization. If you want to realize, you know, if you want to know how to travel from Phoenix to Los Angeles, just get on the freeway and stop for gas when you need to. And that is a algorithmic procedure, but there's many ways of being happy when you're traveling from Phoenix to Los Angeles. And that's not necessarily algorithmic and there's not just one way of doing it. it. If you want something that's more conceptual, more attitudinal, perceptual, emotional, um, uh, in terms of identity, then you need to be able to think in terms of what evocative experiences prompt the realization that the client needs to have. Is that the only way of doing psychotherapy? I don't think so, but it's the way that I think when I'm doing psychotherapy, what is the concept that the client needs to realize? How can I use evocative techniques to help the client to empower himself to realize um, things that are well within his or her capability, but not in, within the, the realm of capability seemingly at the moment? And one of the books you have is about evocation. Another book about a different framework for thinking about therapy, uh, evocative methods rather than informative methods. We go to the movies because we want to have an experience. We want to feel adventure or love, or we want to feel conflict. But we don't go to the movies because we want to fill our left hemisphere with information. Same thing about dance or music or the art gallery or reading poetry or literature. We do this because we want to realize something. And the methods that are basically hypnotic are stimulating realizations into play. Um, I know that you also have a lot of, of other books about uh, with uh, Milton Erickson, such as the letters from Milton Erickson, and um, a lot of also talking about his techniques. Uh, this an epic life from Milton Eric uh, Milton Erickson. Um, is that for psychotherapists and mental health uh, professionals, or um, is it also um, a beautiful read for people who are not necessarily mental health professionals? Yeah, it's not about the techniques of psychotherapy. Uh, it, there's a, a, a portion about explaining a little bit about psychotherapy and a little bit about the place that Erickson had in the pantheon of psychotherapy experts, but it's really meant to, to be for casual readers who would uh, be able to benefit personally from understanding the um, whatever struggle we have, whatever obstacle we face, we uh, uh, can look inside ourselves and see what is that fulcrum that will help us to be better people in the face of remarkable adversities that we will all that we're all challenged with. So for everyone, um, go to Amazon or go to the Milton Erickson Foundation. Well, it's ericksonbiography.com. If you go to E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, ericksonbiography.com, you can find out information about our activities at the Erickson Foundation and especially about this particular book. Beautiful. An epic life, Milton Erickson. Uh, for all the therapists or mental health professionals, uh, please also go to uh, com uh, couplesconference.com and uh, Evolution of Psychotherapy.
www.ecofinancialconference.com uh, for all of it. So it's coming up um, uh, December in Orlando, actually, right? For the psychotherapy, yes. Yes, yes. I will be Glad there. Glad to see you there. Yes, I will be there. I'm never going to miss, miss these. Never, never, never. <laughs> oh, super. Um, last word of wisdom for everyone. Before you did a great interview. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And thank, thank you for all the wonderful things that you're doing to make the world a better place. Same here. And thank you for always mentoring me. And, and, I, and I cherish you. Thank you. Okay. Take good care. Bye-bye. For all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye-bye.